This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of I Want to Matter. Your life is too short and too precious to waste. Written and narrated by New York Times bestseller Kathy Lee Gifford. Available now everywhere you get audiobooks. From Christianity Today, you're listening to The Bulletin, a podcast about the people, events, and issues that are shaping our world. I'm Mike Cosper, and today I'm joined by my colleagues Russell Moore and Nicole Martin. Today on the show, we're going to talk about two rulings at the Supreme Court, the 303 creative case and what it might mean for religious liberty and free speech, and the affirmative action ruling. What does this mean for equality and opportunity in education and college admissions? Then we'll talk about Hunter Biden, London Roberts, and the granddaughter the president doesn't acknowledge. Stay with us. It's summertime, which means, among other things, along with vacation, it's Supreme Court ruling time. Most of these rulings came down several weeks ago. We've been on a break. We've been on vacations and taking a couple weeks off for the summer anyway. But we didn't want to let the opportunity pass by to reflect on some of these have been significant. And two in particular that we'll talk about today. The first one that we'll talk about is what's been referred to as the 303 creative case. At the heart of this case is a woman named Lori Smith. She runs a web design business called 303 Creative and, and was offering a service that specialized in custom websites for couples that were getting married. She filed what's known as a pre-enforcement challenge, essentially a lawsuit that preemptively challenges a law. She was suing the state of Colorado in advance, knowing that if her business received requests from same-sex couples, she wouldn't be conscientiously comfortable with providing services and would be open to prosecution. It's an important thing to mention in this because there's been, I think, some spin on the story that's a little confusing around that fact. These kinds of challenges aren't new. It's the kind of lawsuit that happens on a fairly regular basis. Kind of the heart of her argument was that her work as a web designer, it's creative work, is a matter of speech, and that creating a same-sex wedding website would violate her conscience and compel her speech. So then in July of 2021, a court of appeals ruled against her, saying that Colorado law required her to serve same-sex couples. She appealed to the Supreme Court, and in a 6-3 ruling, they sided with 303 Creative and struck down the Colorado law. Russell, cases like this have been going on for about a decade. You've been involved in a number of them. What do you make of this ruling? Well, you're right that there are some people who are trying to make this look really nefarious by saying, well, there wasn't anybody who was actually trying to get her to do their website, and so she's just making it up. But as you said, she knew this is what the law says in Colorado, and I can't do my business if my conscience doesn't allow me to do my business. So I have to get this sorted out to know whether or not I can do it. And it's one of those cases, I think there's also been a lot of overheated rhetoric about this case. There was uh, someone who said, well, now I'm going to shut down my, I think it was a hair salon to same-sex couples. And well, that's not what this case says. So it's it's really not about, oh, well, you get to discriminate against a group of people. It's about whether or not the government can compel creative work to say something that one does not believe and that violates one's conscience. This wasn't a religious liberty case. It was a freedom of speech 
case, First Amendment case. And so really what this has to do with is can you force the public's grocery store down the street to make a Confederate flag cake for you or a Nazi swastika cake for you? No. People, when they're using their creative gifts, aren't just sort of serving people. They're also expressing. And if the government can force you to express something in a certain way, then you don't have freedom of speech. So it really wasn't as uh, radical or as earth-shaking of a case as many people would like to picture. How would you position this in terms of the masterpiece cake shop or the you know some you know the florists that have been sued over similar issues? Well, in some of these cases, the argument is about whether or not there really is a creative expression. So that was when it came to the florist case, a lot of that argument was about, okay, if you go to get flowers, is this a service or is somebody actually using creative expression in terms of flowers. I mean, the same thing would be the case with wedding photography, for instance. The argument would be, is a wedding photographer like a photojournalist who's just making a note of what has happened, who's recording what has happened? Or is this more of an artist who's coming in and saying, I'm telling a story around this wedding using my creative gifts? And and those would be two different answers. This was a fairly clear-cut sort of case relative to some others because this is somebody who clearly is using creative artistry in order to tell a story about a, about a wedding. That's what the website is about. It's not just, here's this wedding happening, come to it if you want to. It's about, here's the story of this marriage and why this matters. And this person said, I can't tell that story if I think that what's taking place is wrong. And uh, so I think the court was recognizing it doesn't matter whether or not you agree with this person on that. It's it's a question of whether the government should coercively be able to force you to do it. Nicole, what have you made? What have your reflections on this case been? Yeah, that's really, I appreciate Russell's perspective. I think this case, like many other cases, requires a deeper level of nuance, particularly for Black evangelicals. So on one hand, it's hard not to see a layer of what feels like discrimination in this case. And I hear the argument, I know that this is more about compelled speech, but there is a layer of fear from the history of the United States. What happens when we give permission to people to say, I'm not going to serve that group of people because I don't believe in them? And when you unpack the statement, the amount of God language and her God-given calling and her God-given convictions and, and not wanting to displease God, it makes it very difficult to disentangle the rights that we have as citizens of the United States from what someone believes is a deep calling for what some might perceive as a prejudice or a discrimination against other people. Now, I know what I believe. And many black evangelicals are very, very strong in their understanding of a marriage between a man and a woman. And nobody wants to force anyone to have to serve people that don't agree with what they believe in. But I returned to a few years ago, the Fairness for All Act. And a lot of black evangelicals felt like I can sign this act, which prevented discrimination against LGBTQ community members, but also protected religious freedoms so that religious institutions in particular, but those who were standing on Christian principles could also say, here's what I'm going to do and not do. 
So I'm still in conversation. I appreciate the perspective, but I can't fight the importance of nuance. Like when you were talking about the difference between this and the baker and the hairstylist, these are important nuances. So how we're seeing this play out in media is, oh my gosh, this 303 creative case is going to paint the picture for all to come. Well, no, not necessarily. We are going to have to, from this point on, dig deep into the nuance and think about if we say no to this, what more do we need to be aware of? And how do we as Christian business leaders and Christian ministry leaders conduct ourselves in a way that avoids discrimination, but also stands on firm conviction? Yeah, but this isn't a public accommodation discrimination case, even in the harder ones. I mean, this is essentially saying, should a Jewish web designer be forced to do the Jews for Jesus website uh, (laughs) that is is telling the story of why Jesus is the Messiah? And uh, the First Amendment would say, no. That's that's a great example because we don't have to go to the Nazis. That is a great example. Yeah, yeah. That's, right. that's a, a perfect example. Yeah. Thank you for yeah. that one. That's great. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, what's happening in that case is not that this Jewish person is saying, I'm discriminating against Christians or I'm refusing to serve Christians. It's to say, I can't in good conscience tell that story and market that the way that you want me to. So you need somebody else to do it. Okay, we can work around that rather than simply Mm -hmm. having the case. If you're going to be in business, then that means that you have to use your expressive ability Mm -hmm. no matter what it is you're being asked to express. And this is really just basic American pluralism, not a refusal to serve groups of people. I Mm -hmm. completely agree public accommodations law ought to be really tight. And so you, you can't say... I'm not going to serve food in my restaurant to LGBTQ people. Right. No. Right. But that's a different thing than saying I have to give, not just give support for, but I have to use the gifts that I have to creatively express that support for something (laughs) I don't agree with. And that's Mm -hmm. all that this case was really doing. Yeah, I have a friend that's a musician, and he he posted about the ruling when it came out, and he said, okay, if this is the law now, then I'm just going to go ahead and say that from here on out, no bigots, no racists can listen to my music anymore. <laughs> and, you know, I, I, wrote, I wrote to him and, privately, and I said, I said, you know, number one, actually, you can do that. You can decide wow. where your music is distributed and play to only the people that you want to play to. Nobody's saying you can't do that. And number two, this is more akin to somebody coming to you and saying, hey, would you come play Sweet Home Alabama at my Klan rally next weekend? Right. That's exactly <laughs> You say, I don't want to do that. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. mm-hmm. And you ought to have the right. No one ought to be able to compel you to perform in a position like that. So, But I, again, like I do think it gets lost. One of the things I want to ask related to this kind of the public accommodations thing, because I, I do think there is this, this deep illiberalism that's an undercurrent for all of this that feels kind of scary. And and I remember, I think it was last summer, I think it was another Supreme Court case. There was a gathering that was, I think it was a conservative attorneys related to a Supreme Court case. They had booked a room in a restaurant to have like a, like a catered dinner with a group of people. And the restaurant said, we're not going to serve you. You know, we kick you to the curb. To me, like that strikes me as, is that a violation of public accommodation? Is that... Mm. How does that fit in? And how do we think of that in terms of the, you know, having nothing to do with the cases themselves or the ideology? It doesn't matter. 
the point being, is that on the same level here? Is that different? How do you think of that, Russ? It's not what this case is about. It would be more right. along the lines of if that group of conservative lawyers had said, we want to hire some musical group to write a song about why original intent is the way to read the Constitution. <laughs> that that would be covered right. in this in this uh, in this ruling. So you can't you can't force people to do that. It doesn't give any freedom to a hotel to say we're not going to, you know, give you a room because you're a Federalist Society member, or mm-hmm. we're not going to let we're not going to serve you. It doesn't cover those things. It's about creative speech. Taking it a layer out of sort of the legal into more of the personal conscientious spiritual formation kind of level. How would you be counseling believers who are wrestling with these things? And someone comes to them, say that person's a person in your church, and rather than having a firm sense of conscience about it, they go, I don't know that this bothers me to make a wedding cake, to do the flowers, to do a website. How would you counsel someone along those lines? Let's start with you, Nicole. Small sidebar, I was in a room with a bunch of pastors yesterday. They were talking about being in their 20s and counseling people with serious problems that would come to them. And they were like, you know, on the outside, they're like, yes, yes. And on the inside, they're thinking, what? You got a problem. You're going to have to find someone to help you with that. (laughs) (laughs) I'm I'm all out of ideas here. (laughs) So beside that, beside thinking to myself, oh, my God, you need a lawyer. I I think the, the points that I was making earlier, I think we need to train believers to understand the core of Scripture, the truth of God's Word, and to apply that within cultural nuance in a way that honors God. So here's what I mean. I would say, number one, I would counsel that business owner to remember why God called them to start the business in the first place. Now, if they're a member of a flourishing, healthy, thriving church, then they would know that that business was designed to honor God whatever that business is. Then number two, I would say, what does it look like to honor God in our society today? And I do believe that standing on your convictions with love and grace is the way that God has called us Mm. to give our lives to the world, not only our businesses. So I would probably say, because of who you are, because of why God gave you that business in the first place, because of the witness that you need to portray in the world, the next question is, how? How are you going to stand on your convictions and honor God in this way? And let's move forward with that. Let's help you with the how. But I would pray that there wouldn't be a question on whether or not I would stand on my convictions. That would be a challenge. If a person is saying, I don't know if I want to really honor God with my business, then we have a deeper discipleship question. Russ, you have anything to add to that? Well, my, my I would differentiate between the legal issue and that uh, question mm-hmm. of counsel, because there are all kinds of things that I think people should do that I don't think people should be forced to do. I'm perfectly fine with doing the Jews for Jesus website. I don't Mm -hmm. think that my Mm -hmm. Jewish neighbor should be forced to do it. Um, Mm -hmm. And when it comes to this question, I mean, look at what Scripture teaches about conscience. There's quite a bit the Apostle Paul gives to this in Romans 12 through 14 and also in 1 Corinthians when it has to do with uh, meat offered to idols, in which Paul says, yeah, when you eat meat that's offered to idols, you're, you're not eating, you're not actually, there's no such thing as these idols. It's just a, a piece of meat. But you should not bind the conscience of somebody else. And so mm-hmm. if somebody thinks that they are sinning and acting against conscience, that does great damage to them. Mm-hmm. So I often am differentiating, and I have this conversation all the time, 
if yeah. somebody comes to me and says, hey, do you think that if I say as mayor of my city, we're really thankful for our Hindu citizens here in the city and it's Hindu recognition yeah. day, does that imply that I'm endorsing Hinduism? If somebody's asking me that question, I may come in and say, no, not necessarily. Yeah. You're not endorsing Hinduism when you're saying mm-hmm. that. I don't think you have any reason to have a, a conscience bothering you about that. But if somebody comes to me and says, my conscience won't allow me to say that, then I'm going to deal very gently with that person's conscience. And I think what the Bible's teaching us is even if our conscience is oversensitive, mm-hmm. when we run over it, and pave over it and learn how to silence it, ultimately we lose the ability to listen to it at all. So we Mm -hmm. don't bind one another's consciences. And that means you're going to have some people who can, as Paul says, who can eat anything and give glory to God uh, for it. And then there are going to be other people that if you ask them to do that, you're going to be leading them into sin, even Mm -hmm. if what they're doing is not actually a sin. And I think that's an important principle to keep in mind here. And I also wonder how much context plays into that as well. I mean, a mayor in a city like Seattle versus a mayor in a city like Nashville will have a different context and a different calling on how to bear witness of the love of Christ in both of those situations. So, I mean, I I don't want to overpound this word nuance, but as we live out our faith in society today, it is going to require nuance, which then means I'm going to have to suspend my judgment of that person standing up saying, I appreciate Hindus, and suspend my judgment of the person who doesn't say that, because the nuances of how their conscience plays out in society is going to be different in each case. Well, and it also is telling you, I mean, there may be somebody who comes to me and says, I want to run for mayor, but I know that I'm going to have to talk about the important contributions of our Hindu neighbors. Do, you, do Am I going to be sinning? My response mm. is going to be no. You're, you're going to be <laughs> representing a pluralistic society and talking about how you need everybody in that society to, to work. But if somebody says to me, I can't do that without, without endorsing Hinduism, then I would be saying to that person, you shouldn't run for office. Mm-hmm. You, you should be doing other things, not you just need to do this and buckle down. Mm-hmm. Uh, so th- th- those mm-hmm. are going to be mm-hmm. almost specific sometimes to the person. Exactly. All right. Well, let's jump to the next one. Another landmark ruling from the Supreme Court this summer was uh, it effectively struck down affirmative action. The case was fascinating to me because the case was actually brought to the courts primarily by Asian applicants to Harvard and University of North Carolina who were arguing that the schools had discriminated against them in order to sort of keep the balance required by affirmative action statutes and and rules within the institutions. Affirmative action has been in place since about 1978. These students made the case that they were adversely affected. You know, if you read what was going on in Discovery, the internal communications inside Harvard and, and UNC about Asian applicants, about Asian students, it was pretty clear that the schools were taking into account these are Asian kids and we have to treat them differently because of what they bring into the system. And so the Supreme Court effectively struck it down. There is an interesting kind of loophole in the decision that I thought was worth mentioning for this conversation, which is that they did say, race can be considered as a factor as a part of the person's individual narrative. So for instance, if somebody is submitting an essay in their application to Harvard, to UNC, to one of these different places, and says, 
I grew up African-American. Here's my background. Here were the experiences of my family and how that's made me into who I am and what I am. Those kinds of narratives, those kinds of situations can be taken into account. But in terms of it being sort of pure, objective, you know, test scores and grade point average and all of that, that's been dismissed. So, Nicole, let me jump to you. You and I have talked about this offline a couple of different times now. What do you make of the ruling? So, I mean, full disclosure, this one hit me very personally because I attended Vanderbilt University on a scholarship for African-American students. I was so honored to be a part of that. I had the grades. I was a part of an IB program. I was, you know, top of my class. And yet this scholarship gave me an opportunity to go to a school I hadn't considered. When I think about my experience at Vanderbilt, I think not only was I honored to have the experience at that school and to be a part of this body that was not as diverse then as it is now, but secondly, other students got a chance to meet me. I mean, I Vanderbilt was the first time I had someone say to me things like, oh my gosh, your hand is two different colors. It's light <laughs> on the inside and dark on the outside. It was the first time I had someone ask me to touch my hair which I found highly offensive, but that person had never been in close proximity with a person of color. So all of these experiences happened because a system allowed me to show up in a space that arguably, and this is, this is again, the nuance. I don't know if I hadn't gotten that scholarship, would I have been able to get into that school? I wouldn't have been able to afford it, but would I have gotten in? I don't know. So it is hard for me to see this whole conversation of affirmative action outside of my own experience. Now, what I do know is the entire educational system is in need of desperate revamping in order to ensure equity, in order to level the scales so that all children and all young people have an opportunity to equally access the opportunities that are afforded by a university education. And those flaws go much deeper than affirmative action. But when I look at the statistics of California, when they have been decades over having ended affirmative action, and yet they still have not reached the levels of diversity in their universities that they had when affirmative action was in play, my reflex is to go back to my freshman year and say, as awkward as those questions were about my hair, about my skin tone, There are students now going to colleges and universities in California that won't have a black friend. And I'm not tokenizing it. I don't want to minimize the situation. But my reflex is to go back to my own experience with that. Russell. Well, I think part of the problem is even the language of affirmative action, because it is a really porous sort of word. It can mean everything from a school says we want to go out of our way to recruit African-American students or Asian-American students or some other group of students in order to have a more representative student body, all the way over to some of the allegations and charges here, which is to say you ought to exclude Asian-American students even if they are qualified to come in because they don't meet certain goals and timetables. And I mean, everything in between. Mm -hmm. So I don't know that this court case is quite as sweeping as maybe some of the people celebrating it think it is or some of the people worried about it think it is. I think we're still going to have affirmative action in that first sense. And I don't really think this Supreme Court ruling rules that out. 
But it is going to be now, I think, a more complicated sort of conversation about legacy admissions, about how how is it that you deal with underprivileged persons and communities on the basis of need. I mean, those sorts of things I think are going to go to the court in the years to come and and maybe not even go to the court. But I think you have some universities and colleges who are saying we need to work on this right now. And then part of it is I think there's like with a lot of cases, we're really not going to know what this actually does for a Mm -hmm. year or two. Mm -hmm. And, And there may be a lot of the people who think this is a good decision who change their minds and vice versa when it Mm -hmm. comes to how does this actually play out on the ground. So I have complicated thoughts about this for a lot of those reasons. Number one, though, what's interesting is I've mentioned this before. I grew up in in a house where my dad was a hardcore Rush Limbaugh ditto head, right? But I remember one time, you know, I was probably in middle school, affirmative action came up on something. And, you know, I made a comment to my dad about it because I'd you know, again, imbibed Rush Limbaugh from him. I said, it just doesn't seem fair. And he goes, well, hold on. He was at the time overseeing a a major project at the airport here in Louisville. And he said, look, seeing the way contracts get awarded in this city and in, in other places where I've been, if there weren't something in place that required making opportunity for minority contractors and, and com- minority owned businesses, it would be a good old boy system and it would be all a bunch of white good old boys. Mm -hmm. And so I'll never forget that because it was just, it was out of sync with so much of the rest of his, his political worldview because of his immersion in, you know, the Fox news and, and Rush Limbaugh. The other thing about this, you know, that, that struck me is that there's kind of like, you can kind of look at it as a story problem, right? So who's the hero in the affirmative action story? If you're Harvard from Harvard's perspective, well, from Harvard's perspective, they're the hero. So what Harvard wants is Harvard wants to achieve this particular racial makeup. They want to achieve this vision of affirmative action. And what that means is that in this case, the problem, the obstacle the hero had to overcome was Asian students who were going to skew the numbers. And so in order to overcome that, they had to apply pressure and cut off opportunity from from those kids. To me, that makes a lot of sense of why this case had such power and force to be ruled in the way it was. It was hard. It's hard to imagine it going the other way. What would be interesting to me, and this comes to the larger sort of cultural issue, what do these institutions do, is to say, well, let's flip the story. If the story is about how we provide opportunity for minority students, underprivileged students, then where does the investment go as a culture? Harvard sits on a on a trust fund of $40 billion. That's yeah. enough to buy Twitter back from Elon Musk, though it's probably worth way less than that now. <laughs> $40 billion they're sitting on. And still, 40% of their students are legacy admissions, which means they're paying full price and they're in because of families being high-dollar donors, you know, high-net-worth former alumni. In addition, a lot of the students that count towards their affirmative action quotas are foreign nationals who are also mm-hmm. paying full price right. tuition. That's right. And so you're filling your quotas out with students who aren't actually, <laughs> who haven't <laughs> experienced directly the racial problems of life in the United States. Mm-hmm. So I do think that where we are, there is this distorted 
situation where the concept of affirmative action, the concept of let's provide opportunities, let's have diversity, let's have Nicole Martin going to Vanderbilt and Mm -hmm. gritting her teeth through the awkward conversations, (laughs) you know, Um, that's a beautiful vision. But it seemed like we didn't have a system that was, at least in these cases, that was delivering on that. Just one last thing. The other aspect of it that I think is so interesting is to look at the cultural narrative. What's interesting about Asian students performing the way they do on tests and academia and and the rest of it is that there's a cultural thing that's not just about Asians. It's historically, this is about first and second generation immigrant families coming to the United States. Mm -hmm. In the 1920s, elite universities were having the same problems which is why they established quotas limiting the number of Jewish students that they would let in at any given Mm. time. I read something the other day that the vast majority of Ivy League schools would have been, in terms of grades and performances and and that sort of thing, would have been Jewish had they not established these 20% quotas in the 1920s and 1930s. And again, that was an immigrant story. That was first and second generation families saying, we're going to open the mom and pop business And we're going to do everything we can. We're going to invest everything we can into our kids, into their studies, into getting them to the best programs, the best tutors, the best, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And so there's something about that that I think contributes to the larger question of how do we solve this diversity and equity of opportunity, equality of opportunity questions when culture runs so deeply into it? And I think we also can't ignore the effect that COVID had on our educational systems as a whole. Mm -hmm. So, you know, this whole conversation of affirmative action happens before the great divide. And and this is my own kind of framing of what's happening in education now. During COVID, parents of students who had the education, parents who could stay near a child or at least get a child into a school that was open, that gap, their intelligence, their access to information grew. Parents who came alongside students, they grew. Parents who had hourly jobs, who could not be at home with students, students who had to stay in a public school setting where they had to be on kindergarten online and a high school student is keeping a sibling online, that gap, that lack of knowledge, that lack of growth grew. So now when you talk about we're not going to see the effects of this for another 10 years, we're also not going to see the effects of COVID for another 10 years. And we're starting to see a little bit of it. I read a report the other day that said 13-year-olds are performing far worse in terms of their science and math and and reading skills now than they were several years ago. That gap is only going to increase. So now we're not just talking about affirmative action. We're talking about access. We're talking about, Mike, what you're saying. It's not just families who are immigrant families, but it's families who are educated, teaching Mm -hmm. their children the value of education. And 10 years from now, the kids who couldn't stay in school in kindergarten, first and second grade will be the ones who will be in greatest need. So what systems do we put in place so that they can get to high school, let alone getting to apply to a college and get to a high school where college is enforced? My husband went to a high school in New York City. He has an immigrant story. His parents were from Jamaica. He grew up in London. His family emigrated from London to New York, to Brooklyn, literally moving from a huge city into another huge city. And at that time, as an immigrant student in high school, no one ever came alongside him and said, you know, one day you can go to college. Hmm. They just didn't have access to that. So these stories, I think the gap between the haves and the have-nots are only going to grow, and COVID has exacerbated that. 
Well, and, and it works the other way, too, in which there is this desperation among the highest echelons of American life. We're desperate to make sure that our kids get into these elite colleges and universities mm-hmm. because right. if they don't, we have entirely failed. And so you, you look around at a lot of, I mean, I talk all the time to you know, I start to say kids, but young men and women who mm-hmm. are in Ivy League elite uh, universities. And a lot of them will talk about the intense pressure that mm-hmm. they had to have every minute of the schedule given over to doing certain things because it would show up on an essay yeah. well for them, doing certain extracurricular activities, doing these sorts of uh, prep classes. Mm-hmm. That I think a lot of people don't even know how much money is being yeah. spent now preparing yeah. these kids mm. from from more privileged backgrounds from the time they're in the in the mm-hmm. seventh or eighth grade mm-hmm. on through to go to college and there's a sense of desperation about that that's yeah. partly sort of a class status question and it's partly because we're in an American society right now where we don't even have options for those people who would say I'm not cut out for college I don't mm-hmm. I don't need to mm-hmm. go to college but there are other avenues for me we've almost given up on that yeah I mean gosh the variables are the variables are wild because at the same time you know with AI coming Lots yeah. of people, you know, yep. it's going to eliminate a lot of jobs like designing, coding, you know, right. the rest of it. I heard somebody, somebody recently say, yeah, yeah right. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Not that. That's a that's for it. No, I, there was a funny comment somebody made about this the other day. Like, what what's going to happen to the people who work in, you know, computer programming and, and design and this kind of thing once once AI takes over? And somebody said... You know, they'll they'll have great jobs washing cars and cleaning houses for plumbers <laughs> and electricians. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> All right. Mercy. Uh, man, I, I would love to see Harvard invest, you know, $38, 39000000000 billion into solving some of these problems. It'd be interesting to see what happened. But mm-hmm. Don't hold your I breath on that one. I won't <laughs> hold my breath. <laughs> All right. We'll be right back. Nicole here. If you're looking for a podcast that features inspiring conversations with theologians, ministers, and pastors, then I recommend adding the acclaimed show No Small Endeavor to your podcast queue. Produced by Great Feeling Studios and PRX, No Small Endeavor explores what it means to live a good life. Each episode, host Lee C. Camp sits down with special guests like the queen of Christian pop, Amy Grant, and pastor and theologian Tish Harrison Warren to ask what it means to live a life worth living. If you're looking for somewhere to start, check out their new episode with Malcolm Gladwell, New York Times bestselling author and host of the wildly popular podcast Revisionist History. They explore how Malcolm became a stellar storyteller, some of the things he may or may not regret, and so much more. It's absolutely worth a listen. Don't miss out. Follow No Small Endeavor wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of Grieve, Breathe, Receive. Finding a Faith Strong Enough to Hold Us. Written and narrated by Pastor Steve Carter. Grieve, breathe, receive. Those three words became a profound mantra for Steve Carter, 
during a season of deep healing, the kind that comes after painful trauma. Grieve, Breathe, Receive is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Visit thomasnelson.com audio to learn more. So earlier this summer, Hunter Biden, the son of President Joe Biden, settled a years-long lawsuit with a woman named London Roberts over child support payments that he owed to Roberts for their four-year-old daughter. He confirmed paternity. She confirmed paternity in 2019. When the child was born, Biden agreed to pay child support, and he'd initiated the lawsuit. He was seeking in recent years to get the payments lowered due to loss of income. The case was settled this June. We, we don't know all the details, but we do know that part of the agreement included Hunter giving his daughter several of his paintings, which have been selling for six-figure sums at galleries on the coasts. This is a weird story. It's a difficult story on many levels. Hunter Biden is a recovering addict. He claims he doesn't actually even remember his encounter with London Roberts. They met when she was working as a dancer at a D.C. strip club. At the same time, like nonetheless, there was a period of time when she was on his payroll as a personal assistant. And that was all the way up through the birth of their child, including three months afterwards. It also just so happens that London Roberts' family has deep ties to the GOP, including to Donald Trump. And then what makes the conversation probably more painful and difficult is the fact that Joe Biden's public persona, something that he's presented for you know the better part of four decades now is that family comes first. It's the most important thing. He often talks about the fact that he talks to one of his grandkids every single day. And yet to date, Joe Biden and Hunter Biden have yet to even meet with this girl or speak to her. According to a July 1st story in the New York Times, Biden's top aides have made it explicit to White House staffers that they are to say that Joe and Jill have six grandchildren, excluding this girl, the seventh. We also know that the settlement between Hunter Biden and London Roberts included a concession on her behalf to drop efforts she was making to change their daughter's last name from Roberts to Biden. Right-wing media has been covering this story for a long time, but as I mentioned, the Times has picked it up, and a lot of places have picked it up in the last couple months, mainstream outlets. Sunday's Times included a, a scathing opinion piece from Maureen Dowd, a left-of-center columnist calling out the Biden family. At the same time, you've had people on the other side saying, look, this is none of our business. We can't possibly know what's happening here. Hunter Biden, recovering addict, who knows the pain that's tied up in all of this. And that's not just been liberal commentary from you know, people like the hosts at The View. It's also been an argument Abe Greenwald made at commentary this week, which is no friend of the Biden administration, to put it lightly. So, Russell, what do you make of this story? Well, I think it's more than just President Biden's persona when it comes to family, regardless of what anybody thinks about him. The way that he responded to Hunter Biden during the 2020 election that people thought would hurt him in the debate, for instance, when Hunter Biden comes up and he says, look, he's been an addict. He's had some trouble with drugs, like a lot of kids in this country and a lot of families in this country. And I'm not ashamed of him and I love him and he's my son. Uh, that actually resonated with a lot of people because a lot of people have that situation. I mean, almost all of us mm -hmm. have that situation somewhere in our families. I do think that that's genuine and authentic. Mm -hmm. He could have easily tried to minimize Hunter Biden in his own biography, and he didn't. In this case, though, this is really disappointing, disillusioning, and gross. I mean, yeah. you have a situation where it is not this little girl's fault 
of whatever substance abuse and character problems that her dad had. It's not her fault that she came along at a politically inconvenient sort of time. And she ought to be embraced and loved. And so the criticism that's coming here is completely legitimate. You have seven grandchildren and they don't have to all fit into the kind of storybook picture that you would uh, that you would put. And look, I think that's a problem, not just politically. It's not just a problem for Biden. It's a problem that I see a lot with people who have children who are disappointing them in some way, who suddenly give the message, you're a problem for me. So that Mm -hmm. means I'm not even recognizing you anymore. I remember there was a young woman who told me she had been adopted when she was a, a little girl and had gone through some hard times with some substances and so forth. And she said, I noticed when my mother started referring to me, not as my daughter, but as our adopted daughter. Mm-hmm. And I knew what she was trying to do. She was trying to say, hey, everybody, it's not my fault. Mm-hmm. And that's not about the child and loving the child. That's about the PR protection of the parent. And that's just wrong. We, we, ought, to, we ought to receive one another and love one another and not be worried about the PR picture, even when somebody's president of the United States. Yeah, Dowd wrote this, or I I guess she's, Maureen Dowd's quoting her sister in the piece where she says this. She says, as she grows up, knowing that her father and paternal grandparents wanted nothing to do with her, she'll probably be able to see a video or two showing her half-sister Naomi getting married on the South Line, and you watching the fireworks on the balcony with little Bo. If she misses that, there will be plenty of schoolmates to remind her that she wasn't wanted. Kids can be mean that way. Mm. That just strikes me as Mm. like... That was that was the point in the I, I I admit to feeling a certain ambivalence about not wanting to judge this harshly, knowing the difficulty of what it's like for life with an addict and the unpredictability and mm. and again, like you know, who knows what's going on on the other side of the family and the antagonisms or whatever. Who knows what that is? Yeah. But I think that quote's so powerful because it just brings home the reality that whatever other factors are playing into this circumstance, this little girl, regardless, is living with the fact that dad wanted nothing to do with me and grandpa, who prided himself on being a grandpa, made his political platform, made political hay out of being a grandpa, told his aides, I have six grandkids, not seven. Yeah. Mm, yeah. And, you know, you can't this is a sad story. There's there's not there's not a political or moral angle that would justify the pain that seeps into this story. You cannot read or hear about the story without also thinking about Joe Biden's tragic accident, losing his wife, losing his daughter, and the effect that that trauma had on his son, the survivor guilt that they struggled with, the effect that that had on how they view every relationship and how he views every child. So the grief of this story kind of triggers the other layers of grief in their lives. And you also can't read the story without projecting forward. I mean, I remember 
every presidency where there were daughters who were young and how people still today Google the daughter's names. They want to see, has this daughter or this child gone wayward? Is this child of the president, you know, are the Obama daughters, are they, are they wayward or are they going the straight and narrow? And now, I mean, there's a reason why in some cases Hollywood stars blur the faces of their children and don't announce their names. And now the world will know Navy's name. So I grieve also for knowing, regardless of what decision is made here, and I do pray that it is a decision where Biden says, you know what, public, I was wrong. And I, I think he has done that before. He has made apologies before, and I, I do hope that that would come soon. But no matter what he does, her name is now etched on our hearts. Her name will be Googled 10 years from now. People mm-hmm. will be watching her life, and the trauma continues. So I think the question is, what right do we have or what obligation do we have to care for families who are in high positions? This also triggers for me the children of pastors of large churches. Mm -hmm. They go through that same uh, hyper visibility and that line, children, yes, you know, that line, children can be mean sometimes when people know whose you are, they put a hyper spotlight on them. So, you know, as a mom, I read this story and I think, Lord God, just protect Navy. No matter how this unfolds, give her some space to just grow up. But I don't know if that privilege will be afforded to her. Well, yeah. that's a good point. She's she's now facing the worst of both worlds mm-hmm. because she has that public visibility and vulnerability now that yep. uh, Chelsea Clinton and Amy Carter, that's right. that, that is difficult even in the best of circumstances. And then you add to that this message of, you're a problem for us. We don't want you even even mm-hmm. acknowledge. That's yeah. that's a yeah. very deadly combination. Yeah. And the other thing that I can't help but think about, and maybe this is because I'm just too politically dialed in and cynical on this stuff, is the first debate between Donald Trump and Joe Biden for the 2024 election, when Donald Trump shows up at the debate with London and Navy Roberts on the first row, like he did the Clinton debate with the Bill Clinton accusers, you know, Mm. that would not surprise me one Mm. bit. Mm. It is, is, you know, he would be shameless about making political hay out of this, this young girl's life. And, Mm -hmm. and so it just, it just strikes me that the primary reason this girl's life is going to be politicized at this point is because of the fact that they did not acknowledge her, embrace her as a granddaughter, it, like you said, it's the worst of both worlds because not only does she face that rejection, she's a political football right now, and that's mm. contemptible. So, and I think I think there's a message here for all of us who are parents: your children and your grandchildren, or whatever you have, are not an extension of you. Absolutely, mm-hmm. they are to be loved and received, regardless of what it is that that's going on in their lives. I mean that yeah. that has to be. I think just consistently driven into people in this sort of era where it's not just politicians who have to deal with this. Everybody's in this yeah. social media era in this kind of, well, how am I going to be judged by whether my family is the way it's portrayed to be on social mm-hmm. media? Give up on that. Love your kids. Mm-hmm. 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 Amen. Yeah, I agree. I mean, that's what I think you you put it perfectly at the beginning of this, Russ, when you said what he said about Hunter Biden in the debate in 2020 was such a compelling response to just simply go, I'm not going to comment on this. This I love my son. I think that is a model for parents. Yeah. Like, I'm not here to defend or 
you know, whatever my, my kid to you, I love my kid and yeah. I love my kid regardless. And mm-hmm. so, yeah, I think that's a great point. So, well, Nicole, Russell, it's good to have you back. It's good to be together again and, and kick the bulletin off again. That is it for us this week. And we will be back here next week once again. The Bulletin is a production of Christianity Today. It's executive produced by Eric Petrick. It's produced by Matt Stevens. It's hosted by Russell Moore and Mike Cosper. Azure Phelps is our associate producer. The show is edited and mixed by TJ Hester. Graphic design by Brian Todd. Additional design by Amy Jones. Music by Dan Phelps. Social media by Kate Lucky. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. This episode was brought to you in part by the Better Samaritan podcast, where Jamie Ayton and Kent Annan discuss everything from simple acts of kindness to complex humanitarian challenges with their guests. Want to learn how to faithfully do good better? Find insights at The Better Samaritan.